I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Earthworm Jim. What is Earthworm Jim? Well, it's a video game, toy line, and animated TV show that took the 1990s by storm. It also has carved out quite a little niche for itself in the retro gaming world, being viewed as one of the most ahead-of-its-time games ever produced. There's only one problem. Earthworm Jim's creator has issues. Let's just enjoy this shit. Doug Tenaple was born July 10th, 1966. He's a writer, cartoonist, video game designer, and illustrator most widely known for his creation, Earthworm Jim. But Dave Perry was the man who truly made Earthworm Jim happen. He was an avid gaming fan born in Northern Ireland who quickly became obsessed with this newly blossoming art form. It's been reported in multiple places that he even programmed a video game for Sinclair's ZX81 at the age of 15. Damn, at the age of 15, I only programmed a game for the ZX80. Fucking Damn. Failure. Fucking failure. Failure. God, you're such a piece of shit. You really <sighs> should work on that. I know. I'm a, I'm a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> he would make I'm multiple... I'm such a fucking idiot. <laughs> Everything just breaks down right now. Dave Perry would actually go on to make multiple games like this, sending the game codes into small press video game magazines. He claims that he was paid roughly 450 pounds a pop for his work. He would soon parlay these connections into real video game industry work. In 1991, he moved to the United States to work for Virgin Games, leading the teams on Mega Drive Aladdin and Global Gladiators. That Aladdin mm-hmm. game is fucking f- the shit. Yeah, it's a really good game. I have I have vivid memories of playing that. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Davy Boy. What, when I was a kid, I, I was lucky enough to be both a Nintendo and a Sega kid because I had an I had a Nintendo and a Super Nintendo at, at my house, but my dad and my brothers and sisters on my dad's side uh, had a had a, a Genesis, and a, and, a, and a Sega Genesis was kind of like the evolution of the Mega Drive. Like the Mega Drive came out, and then they kind of updated it, so all the same games that were for the Mega Drive mostly were also on the Genesis. And I used to go over there and play, among many other things, that Aladdin game. And uh, yeah, that's like that is like one of the best gaming memories I have from that. Like Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 mostly, and then Aladdin. Those were like the best ones. We had a bunch of other games, but none of them were as good. Yeah, Sonic 2 is great. That was like that was the game we played the most. Mortal Kombat 2 also. Um Street Fighter 2, they just really, it, uh, the Sega Genesis, they were just like, we, we hit the sweet spot in the deuce, baby. We, get, we, have that one, we have that one for fun, and then we have the two for you. <laughs> and that's why they hired, uh, that's why they hired fucking old dirty Dave Perry, because they were like, there's two R's in your name. Yeah, we're, 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 we're really big on twos here. Yeah, we just love two. In 1991, Dave Perry moved to the United States to work for Virgin Games, leading the teams for the Mega Drive Aladdin and Global Gladiators. He eventually grew tired, though, of working for the larger apparatus of Virgin and left to start his own company, Shiny Entertainment. He was like, fuck these twos. 
I'm making ones. Shiny quickly partnered with Playmates Toys. They were hot off the success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and were keen to create their own multimedia franchise. Looking at the success of Sonic the Hedgehog, they decided to create a video game to launch their would-be franchise. Harry went in search of a character that he could build this new project around. They needed something weird, something noisy, and something out of the box. They needed something that just wasn't riffing off of any established archetype. Something that would be appealing to kids, but also have some additional charisma that they could parlay into licensing agreements. One of Perry's employees knew Doug Knapel from working with him on the Mega Drive version of Jurassic Park. I also had the Jurassic Park game. That game was fine, but not uh, not as good. It was pretty frustrating. You could either play, you could play as Alan Grant or you could play as a raptor. They were like, Laura Dern, fuck that. I mean, yeah, literally. She's not in the game. They were literally like, all right. Of course, Alan Grant is going to play, you're, you're going to play the main character's Alan Grant. He's the hero of the movie. He's the main character. Uh, we have the choice between this woman, Laura Dern, or I mean, uh, Dr. Sattler, not Laura Dern. That's not her name in the movie. Dr. Sattler. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm, <laughs> as, a, as the resident Jurassic Park expert, I'm pretty sure that her name in that movie is Laura Dern. Yes. I'm Laura Dern. I'm, a, I'm an archaeologist. You can either play this woman, Dr. Sattler, or an animal. We're going go to we're gonna go with the animal. Life finds a way, baby. Life finds a way. After some meetings, Perry asked Tenaple to come up with some character sheets, new possibilities for what the video game project could be based on. Tenaple produced Earthworm Jim. Spandrew, look at some of these drawings from February 10th of 1994. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you see here? What do you see here? I mean, I see... I, I mean... In, I hesitate to say this because we're getting into the darkness, but I see everything I could ever want. I, I, I just, I love, I love the design of Earthworm Jim so much. I just, I love every, every aspect of it. He's like a, he's like a, he's, he's like a, a Rob Liefeld, uh, you know, uh, uh, fucking utility pocket guy with a, with a worm head. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So these drawings, which are dated, February 10th, 1994. Uh, I don't actually know that these are like the concepts that he supplied that the game was eventually based on. I think these are like the refined character designs for what, like a model sheet for the game, um, not like the concepts that they bought for the game. Um, but, you know, it's a worm. He's got little squash and stretched eyes and he's like knotted up in the neck of a giant white, like traditional v-shaped superhero suit um and uh i love how fucking weird this is like his mouth goes outside of the holding line for his worm head he's got like one giant eyeball and one really small one like i it's it's very appealing to me in a this feels like a human made this not in a we ran some Tumblr drawings through a fucking AI filter and got the same like oval shape with spaghetti noodle arms that every fucking character has now. Um, you know, the like post adventure time character design aesthetic. Yeah, they, they call that the, the CalArt style. Yes, they in do. A, in a negative way many times. But yeah. Um, and I actually like that style. It's just when that's the only style, it's like fucking really? Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah, is, well, yeah. The fa- the fact that it's like like make make a make a f- like make a show that has your own style, like yeah, your own voice, yeah, yeah. Um, but the animation industry kind of beats 
having an idiosyncratic voice out of artists because the whole point is that you're supposed to be trained to be uh, a cog in a machine to help this extremely labor-intensive thing to exist. So it makes sense why that is a thing, but that doesn't mean that I have to like <laughs> everything that looks like that. Um, uh, so yeah, this is Earthworm Jim. And uh, if I saw this character just in the wild, I'd be like, hell yeah, what the fuck is that? And that's basically my first exposure to it. Let's let's hold our first exposure to it for a little bit so we get a little deeper in the story. But spoiler alert, mine's basically seeing this character and being like, what the fuck? Perry would instantly fall in love with the character. He was convinced that Tenaple was the man for the job and that Jim was the character to build an empire around. The character's backstory and origin are as zany as they are catchy. Jim is a normal earthworm who is laying on the ground when a spacesuit falls out of the air, landing on him, turning him into the superhero Earthworm Jim. Believe it or not, Perry was so committed to making Earthworm Jim a success, he programmed the game himself. The animation for Earthworm Jim's in-game animation was done by Mike Dietz. He was the main character animator for Virgin's Aladdin. The previously mentioned game that we both were like, this fucking rules. Which makes a lot of sense because uh, it's it's funny because the the game that, that you said that Doug Tenaple worked on, which I actually didn't know that. I played the Jurassic Park game a lot, but I didn't know he worked on it. But that game has very like stiff um, animation. Like it's it's the, the, the graphics are that uh, that graphical style that was done um, on the Sega Genesis post Mortal Kombat. The so basically like what Mortal Kombat did was that they digitized actors like footage and turned them into video game graphics. So it's like these weird, like really low five photographs that are like animating. And um, a lot of games started doing that. And the Jurassic Park game is that like it, it's like the sort of like pseudo realistic looking characters and they walk very robotically. But the Aladdin game has like very fluid cartoon like animation. And so that makes a lot of sense that he worked on that because the 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 Aladdin game a, a lot of the reason why it's so good is because it's like fun to play because the animation is so fluid and and like interesting. And it's specifically because of him that it's so fluid because what he was known for in the 90s is he was like almost kind of like in the way that like the Hanna-Barbera school of like limited animation um Mike Dietz was like the master of almost like reusing animation. So he would take assets and like, let's say a normal way that a programmer would animate, you know, like a character stopping, there would be like six different poses of the character, like with an arm up, with an arm out, their their body jerking to the side, them coming back and then them in the center or something. And he could do it with a way where it would be like half the amount of frames where there would still be six frames, but three of them would be recycling the same actual like movements, but just like either flopping an an aspect of it or mirroring or um, uh, using the same composition uh, with a minor element changed. So it feels smoother and it feels more work and uh, labor intensive, even though it's not. It's actually they're working less. They're working smarter, not harder. Um Oh, good old Mike Dietz. But that's like, I think that's also a big reason of why Earthworm Jim, the game worked because it has a very similar feeling, you know? Yeah, for sure. Now that you're saying it, like the, the animation, the, the like satisfying uh, feedback of the game 
because you know when a game when you play a game not only does it have to have a like, like a good game gameplay loop like the thing that you're actually doing that's like fun the thing that makes the game fun but also like sound design and animations contribute to like the satisfying feeling of the game and so you know whenever the game is kind of clunky and like when you press a button there's a delay in the jump or like when you get an item it doesn't give you like a satisfying sound like all of those things contribute to the game feeling fun to play and now that you're saying all of this like the obviously aladdin and earthworm gym like stylistically are very different but like the feel of them is like very very similar yeah i mean they're also not that different like i think we feel like they're different because we're all familiar with like the disney empire and aladdin being this big movie and but they're also like the games themselves are you know it's you're running through environments you're trying to get stuff you know you're moving stuff around solving little you know it's not it's not that crazy, you know? Yeah, but yeah, but in Earthworm Jim, you grab your own head and sling it across the room like a like a, you know, like a whip and you go, "Whoa, nearly." Yeah, and in, and in Aladdin, you ride a carpet. <laughs> I feel like in some ways Aladdin is weirder. Like there's just a living <laughs> carpet. That's insane. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very that's a very off the wall idea. It's a very avant-garde idea that we that's been normalized to us cuz it's a Disney movie. Uh, when did you first find the Earthworm Jim game? Uh, same thing. Or what was I, your what was your relationship with it? Uh, my so my my dad going to my dad's house for the weekend, which didn't happen very often, but it was like the it was like the the Shangri La. It was like or it was like the land like what what the fuck is that place called in Pinocchio? The place with the little mm-hmm. kid, the island of misfits. The island of you can masturbate anytime you want. I think yeah. that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. That was I mean yes. That's quite literally what what it, what my dad's house was called. Um, he's in jail now. <laughs> 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 uh, um, no, uh, that that he had like at my dad's house there was like a bunch of stuff. Like my parents were not strict a- at all, but there were a few things that were a little even for them. Like they just didn't allow for like weird arbitrary reasons, and a couple of them were uh, that. They didn't really stop me, but they, you know, I wasn't, I like most kids, I wasn't like allowed to like, just like watch rated R movies, like horror movies with like all kinds of blood and gore and mostly nudity, Um, you know, with our, our sort of cultures, like weird thing where we're okay with violence, but like nudity is like bad for some reason. Yeah. yeah, The Um, quintessential American thing where it's like fucking no murder. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of like how my house was like. Violent movies were like mostly fine, but like, you know, they weren't just gonna let me watch movies with like nudity or whatever. Which I probably Strip shouldn't tease? Have, Hell yeah. no. I probably shouldn't have been watching either, but like the fact that they're one of the versus the other one is okay is strange. Um but um at my dad's house, you know, we we could watch whatever we wanted. We, he didn't he literally didn't care at all. It was there was like if my parents were like not strict at all, he was like over the deep end. Um and then the other thing was like playing uh, number one, having a Sega Genesis, which I did not have, and then also kind of like being able to play like super violent games and and not having any kind of like, not that my parents like didn't allow me to, but like, you know, you kind of have that vague feeling of like, oh, if my mom sees me doing this, like she might be like, what are you doing? Or what are you playing? And she's certainly not going to like buy me something that is like super like gory and violent. But at, but at my dad's house, I could just play Mortal Kombat, whatever, didn't matter. Um, So... I I would go over to my dad's house to like do all those weird little things that I wasn't allowed to do even within the realm of a non strict household. 
and um he he so I, I had this feeling of like oh I'm gonna go to my dad's house and do all the cool stuff and he had not the not the Earthworm Jim was a violent game but he had Earthworm Jim and I played that uh and eventually Earthworm Jim too um at his house a lot so not that Earthworm Jim was like violent or sexual or whatever but for some reason I still associate it with that feeling of like going over to his house and being able to do whatever I want and having complete freedom. I like associate Earthworm Jim and like even Sonic and other Sega Genesis games with that feeling of like, oh, I'm I'm fucking going crazy over here. Like I can do whatever the fuck I want. So Earthworm Jim occupies this very specific like this, this specific aspect of my nostalgia, which was not just my nostalgia from my childhood, but like this weird little like island that I could go to every once in a while and like do crazy stuff that my parents wouldn't approve of. It's so interesting about the brand association thing that you're talking about. Cause I kind of have the same thing too. Cause we had like Nintendo stuff mostly growing up. Um, but my cousins had uh, game gear and Genesis. And so whenever they would come visit, they would bring the Genesis and the game gear. And I don't think my mom even really knew the difference or whatever, but I think she just like saw a Mortal Kombat thing once and was like, no, we're doing Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. You know, Wait, something which, like that. Which was totally, I mean, if she wanted to, if she wanted to like control your violence intake and stuff like that, that was a good choice because they really did. Like the Nintendo was the safer one. Like there was Mortal Kombat on it, but it, it didn't have blood. Like it was like a less violent version of it. Yeah. I th- and so like, I kind of have a same, a similar association in my head. That's like completely unfounded. Like it's, you know, it's not real, but for some reason, you know, and my my next door neighbor also had a Genesis. And so there was a lot of like the same types of things that you're talking about of like Sonic, uh, Sonic, uh, there was a couple superhero games. Was there like an X-Men or a Spider-Man game? Yeah. The it chil- was on Genesis. Uh, well, there, yeah. Uh, um, Maximum Carnage and the the Children of Adam. Yeah. Uh, children the, of the Children of the Adam. That yeah, was the, the one that the fighting my, game. Yeah, my next door neighbor had, and we used to play that a lot. Um, and so I have a similar kind of brand association with Genesis where it feels older and more, you know, avant-garde and like, oh, they have blood, fucking blood, bro. They got fucking blood. Um, which is like, you know, nothing by today's standards. But um, yeah, I, I I played Earthworm Jim at my na- my neighbor's house, Ian. We, we would go over there and play it. And I was, I rem- I can remember the like, the little art on the the cartridge, like it's like burned into my head. It's kind of in the same way that, you know, Monkey Island, when we talked about that, where it was, it, there's something about those little, you know, sounds, sounds such a, like an old head thing to say, but like there was something about in the media landscape of pre-internet, every bit of art was just like these sacred little totemic things to a wider world where you're like, I know out there somewhere people make cool things what is this weird worm in a superhero suit this is amazing (laughs) yeah yeah i mean and it's kind of like it it, it's it's kind of mind-blowing when you have that one like i think the biggest one of the biggest things about earthworm jim is what you were saying earlier where it's like so singularly unique that like when you're a kid the one two punch of like discovering something new, which is like as a kid is like a whole other experience. Like when you find something new as a kid and whenever it's something kind of like that you don't have ready access to, like it's something that a friend shows you 
Like that's that's like that's like one of the that's like one of the best experiences you can have as a kid. And then whenever it's like so unique and strange that it just it's just like, what the fuck is that? Like those two things paired together. It's like burned in your memory forever. Like you'll never forget that. Yeah. Like and especially because the game has such a simple hook of like it's basically Mario. Like as even as a kid, I was like, oh, okay, there's like a princess that gets kidnapped by a villain and we're this weird worm guy we got to go save her like i i understood immediately what it was but i also was like this is so not super mario brothers <laughs> like this is fucking weird it's hard it looks amazing like i i tried to draw that fucking worm thing from memory so many times but it never looked right because his design is so strange and the proportions are weird that like you know drawing Filtering Mickey Mouse through a child is pretty simple. Like it's three circles. You know what it is. Even if it's wonky, because it's those that primary shape, you understand it. Whereas I repeatedly tried to draw Earthworm Jim and it's it was just like there's a whiff of smoke coming out of a neck. What is this? <laughs> I don't know if I I don't know if I ever tried to draw Earthworm Jim. I don't remember I don't remember. I have no memory of trying to draw him. Well, regardless, the game is cool. Um, if you had to tell somebody that doesn't know about the game, uh, what would you say? The princess What's-Her-Face gets kidnapped by uh, Professor Monkey for a head, and then we are fucking Earthworm Jim. We got to go try and save her, and you do side-scrolling adventures? Earthworm Jim, and then like similarly to what we were talking about before, Earthworm Jim 2, which I think is like a little bit better of a game. Um, but, they're, but they're very similar. And essentially, they are side-scrolling platform games. Um, on this on the Sega Master Drive slash or yeah no they I think they just came out for the Sega Genesis um and uh they are like like Dave said it's like not unlike many other platformers you're going through stages and you're fighting enemies and you're you know jumping on platforms and then you're getting to a goal uh but unlike other platformers it's got this like really madcap especially for the time really uh idiosyncratic humor to it it has like a really interesting and unique voice to it which which i think was a lot of doug to naples like input not only on the art direction but just on like the the vibe or or like the the humor aesthetic of it so like i was talking about before like earthworm jim he's like a weird he's like a weird guy like he's not just like a a, a, your typical like video game hero like he's like a weirdo like he not only is he this robotic suit with a worm for a head but he also just really acts strange like he he walks around going like yeehaw and like whoa nearly like he just has like really weird almost like they're almost like satire of video game sound bites whereas like you know super mario is like woohoo yeehaw and then like you know other characters will have like you know the, uh link is like ha ah, yeah like you know yells of like a younger yeah yeah like the Earthworm Jim sounds are almost like a parody of that, where he just says weird shit. Um, and it has just like a really kind of like unique kind of gross looking world. that's like a lot of like pus and goo and pulsating things. And like I was saying, one of the villains is Queen Slug for a butt that has like a giant slug as a butt. And the characters all have these weird kind of like mashup names of Professor Monkey for or, uh Professor Monkey for a head who has like a literal monkey attached to his head. Um, very much in line with the like the Playmates TMNT original line of figures. Like 
if you don't it, a lot of like tmnt gets like sort of like sanitized by its later iterations uh like you know the the later the animated show in the 80s and all of the movies and things like that um but the original ninja turtles toy line the whole point of it was that it was gross like all the characters were like weird and slimy and they had like bugs all over them and it it was supposed to be like a gross toy line and i see the the connection because that earthworm jim is just is just that aesthetic it's just weird gross stuff um so you know if you want to play a, a a video game a retro video game but you also want this really interesting colorful aesthetic that has a lot of like unique character design and like kind of gross stuff and weird off the wall humor um uh you can't you can't you can't go wrong with earthworm jim um and as a matter of fact uh you could either play the original ones for the for the genesis or you could play that that hd remake that they had done back in the like 2010s they remade earthworm jim in 3d um and I don't remember. I don't know where you can get it. It used it used to be on like Xbox Live and the PlayStation Store, but I don't know where you would get it now. But it was pretty cool. It was just it was just the exact same game, but 3D. Yeah, I think the humor, like you said, is the big thing that really sticks out both at the time and and contemporarily looking back at it. Where it's very meta, it's very self aware in a in a sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a not so good way. Um, it's also very formalistly interesting. Where there's a sequence where you like blow up a cow early in the game and then at the end of the game there's a twist that happens where that cow just like falls on somebody and kills them it, i mean and at that point it's the it's the princess you, yeah in the in the in the first stage at the very end of the first stage you launch a cow and then at the end of the game when you save the princess the cow kills her yeah it's amazing it's amazing uh yeah uh i i loved the game as a kid uh and so it, there's aspects of it that, you know, again, don't hold up as well, but there's aspects of it that are just like so funny and smart. Yeah, that 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 scene, that one stage in uh, Earthworm Jim where you're you're like flying through the air and you're like whipping from tree to tree. And then Earthworm Jim says, women don't have penises. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my is God. It, is it too early to get into that part? <laughs> we're we're getting there. We're getting there, baby. We're getting there. So here's where we get glimpses of the dark underbelly of Jim as a character. In the game, he goes up against Professor Monkey for a head, which was inspired by Tenaple's distrust of science and contempt for Darwin's ideas of the origin of species. Since Jim's release, Tenaple's political views have become front and center to his artistic persona. In the finale of the game, Jim finally rescues Princess What's Her Name. But right as they're reunited, a cow lands on her. This was set up at the beginning of the game, and it's widely remembered as one of the most off-the-wall video game endings ever. Act 2. Eat the worms, Granny. Upon the game's release, it was a massive success. This was due in part thanks to a widely controversial TV commercial that featured an elderly woman eating live worms. This is the story of Earthworm Jim video game. In outer space, a sweet evil cyborg lost a queen cyberspace suit while it smooshes. 
When I slimy earthworm Jeff and Blamo, he becomes a superpowered hero. He takes out that precious dog. Then that stupid worm goes onto the planet. He even tries mucus bungee jumping. And if that doesn't stop him, maybe the battle with Queen Festering Sweaty Slug for a butt will. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like the 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 listener could not possibly even understand what was going on there. Uh it's a it's a little old lady who's eating worms that entire time and as she's eating worms she's descending into madness and uh the camera's getting more and more fish-eyed. It's amazing. And and that she's like developing like a weird demon voice for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. That yeah, that, that this was during that time in the in the in the '90s and early '90s where like they just didn't know how to market games. Like nowadays, uh, game trailers are a combination of just footage from the game, like gameplay footage, and then cinematics, kind of like conveying the story or at least the concept of the game, if you know whether it has one or not. Um, and they they're they're similar to movie trailers they're just trailers for the game um but back then i guess they just like it was such a new thing that they just didn't like they were like you know in a movie trailer you show scenes from a movie what do you do for a game like you can't just show moments from the game people like people would that, that's not a that's not a good commercial so they just like didn't know how to market them so the thing that they came up with was that every game commercial was just like some character or person talking and just saying weird shit and then it would like cut away to the game every once in a while except for that fucking mortal Kombat ad which is like the greatest ad in the history of mankind oh yeah 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 yeah, that, yeah that's a pretty good one that mortal Kombat one if the listener is not aware the initial campaign to promote mortal Kombat one is basically like it looks like a david fincher movie where there's all these like really low angles of buildings and people running through the streets it looks like a 28 days later trailer where people are running and there's all this kind of like chanting and stuff. And then you find out that they're all running to go play Mortal Kombat. Um, and it's it's I'm not selling it <laughs> appropriately. It is so good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's it's like it's kind of like that 1984 Apple commercial. It's just like, yes, more epic than it ever has like needed to be. Yeah. Thank you, Ridley Scott, for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the. The so the but the the game kind of got in hot water due to that uh that commercial when it came out. Everybody, you know, a lot of parents were up in arms about like you're promoting eating worms to our children, which is just which like, is what? so weird. That's like such so a weird. tame. Like I would never in a million years see that commercial. It'd be like people would are gonna complain about this. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But that controversy sold a lot of games. The popularity of the games then expanded into Earthworm Jim 2, Earthworm Jim 3D, and the Game Boy's Earthworm Jim colon Menace to the Galaxy, which culminated in an animated TV show, Earthworm Jim, you guessed it, created by Doug Tenaple. The series lasted two seasons from September 95 to December 13th, 96. Here's the intro to the show. Earthworm Jim The soil he did crawl Earthworm Jim A super suit did fall Jim was just a dirt-eating, chewy length of worm flesh But all that came to a crashing game Earthworm Jim He's such a groovy guy Earthworm Jim He rockets through the sky Cruising through the universe Having lots of fun Here comes Earthworm Jim You know that he's a mighty one Look out! 
Despite his great big muscles and his really big ray gun, Jim is still an earthworm, but then he's the only one with a super suit to make him really super It's strong. funny because this animation isn't bad, but it's also like not that cool looking. Like everything is so simplified that it kind of. Earthworm Jim looks cool, but the personality of everything is just kind of dampened. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it doesn't. It does not have the personality of the game at all because it's you know it's one of those I don't know whatever animation studio does did this, but it's like one of those you know not limited animation, but just cheap cheaply animated shows. Uh, yeah, that just it just does not have any like personality. It, you know, typically the the sort of like lighting, the shading of it doesn't have much character. It's all kind of like flatly lit because that's just cheaper to produce and doesn't have doesn't have a whole lot of character to it. Um, but I, but I definitely I definitely watched the show when I was young and liked it. Um, but I don't. But it's not. I don't remember loving it. Like I got it. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh yeah, the Earthworm Jim show. Like it was so great. Like I just remember watching it because I liked Earthworm Jim. Yeah, that was basically mine. I think I didn't. Honestly, I didn't even watch that much of it. I watched a couple episodes and was just like, this isn't like the game. Meh. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The 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 game has a lot more atmosphere. It just looks cooler. And you have the benefit of like not being able to fill in all the blank blanks with your imagination. Whereas the show, much like a lot of those shows in the '90s, like like the honestly the Ninja Turtle show, the Ninja Turtle show is not that good. And and it, the, all those shows they suffer from the exact same thing. The concept of, the concept of it is cool. It brings you in with the concept, but then in reality, what the show is is like a weird animated sitcom where it's just like the characters joking and then like it's, it's not, they're not actual like real action shows they're just like the characters walk around making jokes and then like throwing trash cans at people or whatever because they weren't allowed to show fighting and also fighting is like expensive to animate so the shows were actually just like people walking and talking basically here we got uh, we got some photos of the toys that spun out of the uh, that playmates eventually made from the uh, from the show and the game what do you think of these toys? What do you think? What do you think of these toys? I love the toys. I mean, I I had I had this uh I had this exact Earthworm Jim toy. I had the the Peter Puppy toy. Um, I feel like I have I maybe had a couple of other ones as well, but those are the ones I remember the most. Um, the the interesting thing about this toy is like the head is there's there was a version of it where you could take Jim's head out or I guess his body, and it was like a worm that just put it went into the body and then there was one where his head was just on a ball swivel so the head just moved around on a ball swivel um i had those toys they're really good later on i ended up getting like you know maybe six or seven years ago i got the uh mezco toys earthworm gym which is not articulated so you know it's it doesn't have it doesn't have any points of articulation it's basically a statue but the sculpt and the paint job on it are amazing it's like one of the coolest toys i i have um uh yeah but i i I had a bunch of these or i had a i had at least a few of them for better or for worse the most memorable thing about the show is the opening theme song moving on the second game earthworm gym 2 is more overtly deconstructionist and postmodern like the first game was accidentally a satire on platformers due to the frustrations of the designers working in the industry then they received widespread acclaim for it and realized oh so we're making a satire and so Earthworm Jim 2 is literally a satire on gaming and also features more and more bizarre non-sequitur based villains and humor. Earthworm Jim 3 eh, 
not so well regarded. Tenaple was not brought back for it and has been very vocal that they did not want to pay him to consult, and thus the project went off the rails. You know, you know what's interesting about this, you know, what what we've gone through so far? Um the 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 thing that strikes me is so Earthworm Jim started out and it was supposed to be it was supposed to be a vehicle for a toy line, right? That like they wanted to create a video game that would spawn, spin off into a toy line uh and recreate the success of the Ninja Turtles. Um and and the interesting thing about that is like they had the toys and the toys were cool, but the toy like it's interesting that the toys did not take off and become like a big hit. Like I don't think that I don't think the Earthworm Jim toys were like that big of a deal. They just kind of were there. I don't I don't I don't think they turned into an empire, you know, let alone the size of TMNT. Um and the interesting thing about that is that I feel like the 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 game or the characters are like perfectly suited for a toy line. Like they they should have that in my mind that toy line should have been big because the characters are so cool and interesting. And also, it's not like Earthworm Jim as a franchise like failed or flopped or whatever. Like it it was fairly popular and had an animated show, it had comics, um it's had, you know, remakes of the original games. It's not the biggest franchise in the world, but it's somewhat like persevered in in pop culture. Um and I yeah, it's interesting that the toy line the, the specific thing that they made it for was the one thing that didn't really take off. Yeah, it's also funny, too, that, like, the thing that most toy lines that are successful on a large commercial scale seem to focus on is, like, reducing tooling costs so they recycle body parts, which is why the Turtles was so successful on a purely financial level because every Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle is ostensibly the same character just with a couple different paint apps swapped out. Um, same thing with the Power Rangers. Spoiler alert. The reason why it's so fucking successful is because it's the same fucking toy. They're just like, oh, we got a different head on this one. Sick. And the thing about it is, is that you want every one of them. Like, you don't get Yeah, exactly. Fuck. You can't just have one turtle. You got to have all four. Where, like, but, but, with, but, but, Timmy, they're, they're just the same toy. Like, I'm not going to buy you all four of these. Mom, they're not the same. Leonardo leads. Donatello does machines. Raphael is cool but rude, and Michelangelo is a party dude. They're distinct people. Don't reduce them to their physical bodies, you you sick freak. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, same thing with Masters Universe, right? Like all those characters basically have the same body parts, just swapped around with a couple, you know, different heads or central body piece or whatever. GI Joe, same thing. And you would think that they would have been like, all right, we got to have a couple other suit worm guys. I'm not saying this is a good idea because you want Jim to be the only worm on the show. I'm just saying you would think from a toy design perspective, they would have been like, we got to have a couple other worm suit dudes. Worm cops. Where do I sign the checkbook? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, an, that is an interesting thought that, I, that didn't occur to me is like the, the characters are so like unique and strange that it would be a logistical nightmare from a manufacturing perspective. Yeah. They're also like, as far as like narrative primacy goes, like that's again, that's the reason why GI Joe power Rangers TMNT, the reason why all of those projects are successful to kids in the toy space is because their teams, X-Men, all of the characters do stuff together. You're always interacting with them. You're always seeing them together doing stuff. 
So you uh, you become, you know, proximity breeds loyalty. So you're constantly like, I love Michelangelo because he doesn't get enough screen time or whatever. I want to have two different Michelangelo toys, mom, or whatever. Um, but in Earthworm Jim, does anybody really care about anybody but Jim? You know? In 2019, Tenaple came to Indiegogo to launch a very successful Earthworm Jim-based project. I'm the original creator of Earthworm Jim. I worked on the video game, and I've been doing comic books for the last 20 years. Some of you, bad children, missed out on these two huge volumes of Earthworm Jim, and this is your last chance to get the first print run. This campaign has this really cool print on high-quality archival paper. They're 9 by 12 inches, this is by a concept artist named Alejandro Mirabal. And this comes with every book tier on this campaign. The main Earthworm Jim Launch the Cow comic. This is a 160 page book. It's got gold gilded edges. And look, here's a two page spread on the end sheets. The, the, interesting, the interesting thing about this, and maybe we can talk about this, is like, I didn't look too closely into it at the time. Cause like, honestly, like all this stuff, like I would, this would be on my shelf right current right now. Like I would, I would have, I would have backed all these campaigns and gotten all these books. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, because for things that will, for reasons we'll talk about, um, which, which all kind of started, I became aware of around this time. Um, but, but the interesting thing about this is like, I was always curious because, uh, the book he's talking about Bigfoot bill, like that was obviously supposed to be like, his like knockoff earthworm Jim character. And, and, and I, I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting that, you know, he's doing like a, like a, like a bootleg earthworm Jim, but then, but then somehow he gets the rights to earthworm Jim to do an actual earthworm Jim comic, which I was, I was always curious about how that came about. Cause I feel like big Bigfoot bill wouldn't have been made if he had the rights to do earthworm Jim comics. And then somehow he got it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, basically there's a, you know, there's a period where, you know, earthworm Jim comes out, it's successful. The TV show gets made. He becomes a minor celebrity in animation circles and comic circles there for a minute. His career takes an upward swing. He works on some bigger established shows and then kind of like crests a little bit. And he kind of leaves animation, mostly, I think, because of his political opinions. Um, he kind of, I don't want to say he gets blacklisted, but like low key people, as the years go on, he gets more and more conservative or more and more comfortable talking about his conservative views. And because of that, I get the sense that he kind of got hard to work with. Because it's one thing to have a political viewpoint, but like check it at the door if you're trying to make a career in a collaborative art form. It's another thing when um, that becomes your identity. And so he kind of like left mainstream media spheres for a while and probably spent about 10 years making his own graphic novels, um, largely through like established book publishers. Like I feel like Scholastic put out a bunch of his books and like he he was very successful in that world, um, probably because he was a little siloed away from everybody. So there was a little kind of like a, you know, um, he was able to have a little bit of breathing room interpersonally. And I, he also did some books at Image and like there was a period there where he put out a graphic novel a year, period, like a whole 200 page book. Yeah. And I, I, I read a bunch of those books and I, and, and you know, I, I liked, I liked a lot of them, uh, particularly, uh, the, the book that I'm like blanking on the name of, um, it's called like Gear Tech or. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking it's, about. 
it's a it's a book where a guy uh he he opens up this crate and there's this weird like alien symbiote thing that like attaches itself to you and it has creature a bu- tech. yeah creature tech and it has a bunch of like it ha- like the little thing attaches itself to you and it has like these like uh, these like insectoid arms and it has all these weapons that come out of it and so it like gives him all these special powers um but he can't remove it because it's like it destroys his heart and it starts pumping his blood for him so if he takes it off he dies and i like the the concept of the book um but the interesting thing is is like with that book and basically all of his other books it has this really heavy-handed religious aspect to it that you kind of have to like if you're not into that thing that kind of thing you kind of have to just like ignore it you're just like oh like yeah his books have always have these weird heavy-handed religious messages but like if you just if you just ignore that like it the story is cool um and and yeah like all that stuff his 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 like intense religious views that he not only just held but also like injected heavily into his work and his conservative views that i you know that i didn't agree with uh you know i never really you know that stuff didn't really bother me i was just like oh you you just ignore it like he's kind of like kind of that guy and i don't agree with that stuff but i like his work you know my favorite my favorite author philip k dick was also like an, an insane religious zealot uh and you know that you, you can still enjoy the work without it um it's more of the stuff later on where it's like nah like this this is too far yeah yeah so he basically you know has this big you know probably about whatever two three years ago he starts this big campaign to ally himself with a fringe group of hardcore alt-right comics people called comics gate and he starts launching these crowdfunding platform projects that are like ridiculously successful. And the the real answer to how did he get the rights is he had a fuckload of money from these comics gate kickstarters. You know, like he did one for Bigfoot Bill, he did one for another book that I can't remember the name of now, but they're all like weird kind of bad comics about, you know, very thinly veiled versions of his point of view which is like that's his prerogative that's his right to express himself that way i just don't need to support it but there are a very there are a a a contingent of people who really you know they they're very upset by the idea of um brown people (laughs) like they're just racists and so they throw money at like all of these projects that are in air quotes apolitical you know like Ethan Van Skyver is one of the guys who does this, and he did a comic called Cyberfrog, and Cyberfrog is a comic about a frog with robot legs. There you go. That's what it is. And, you know, these yahoos on the internet are like, fuck yeah, this is great. I'm going to make it a million only, dollar project. But there's only white people and or if they are, if they do have a color, they're like aliens or animals. Yeah, exactly. How um, God intended it. And so, like, you know, it, it, it's weird how these things become politicized. So he allies himself with this group of people who are a very, it's a very small niche community, but they are politically motivated to produce a specific type of work for a specific audience. And that audience is like 300 angry, fat white guys on the internet. And so those 300 boomers each contribute like a lot of money to these campaigns. So the, you know, the 10 to 50, you know, comics gate cartoonists run these campaigns that are just ridiculously successful, like disproportionately successful. 
and Tenaple uses that money to approach um it must it must be the shiny entertainment people you know they, they, they he just made them an offer that was just too good um and they licensed him the rights and normally these things are like you know they're through a company they're through a publishing company that's going to have books on shelves and distributed through comic book stores and all of these things uh, as means of mitigating risk and eventually making back, earning out the amount of money that they're giving as the non-returnable advance or whatever for the rights to produce the book. Doug Chenaple is self-publishing these. So he doesn't have any distribution, uh, to my knowledge. I mean, he made off of the back of how successful these crowdfunding campaigns are. Maybe he has, but my understanding is that they are just self-published, crowdfunded, which is any other comic book project, I would be like, this is doing, he's doing the right way. This is great. They're out here. Fuck a publisher. Fuck distribution. Comics that are sold directly to consumers are just as valid. But in this case, I'm like, fuck you, Doug Snapple. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, and he basically runs multiple of these Kickstarters a year where he'll run one. It gets a He'll run one on Indiegogo. It makes a fuckload of money. He'll wait till the book is done. He'll run another one on a Kickstarter as like a, hey, in case you missed it, that'll make a bunch of money. And then he, in September of 2021, he ran one for Earthworm Jim 2, Fight the Fish, which also made a fuckload of money. Um, and he basically does this. He launches multiple campaigns per book, um, essentially one a year. Um, why? Because he can't get a publisher to take on the project because of his weird, shitty, extreme Political views. Act three. Why can't people just be cool? And here's where we get to the shitty stuff surrounding Doug Tanaple. Believe it or not, Doug Tanaple was a close personal friend of Andrew Breitbart prior to his death. He's been widely criticized for his open opposition to same-sex marriage and his wildly homophobic worldviews. So before we get into uh, reading some of these tweets and watching some of these videos of him and discussing how it does or does not impact our relationship with his work, I got to tell you about the, the time I met Doug Tenable. All right, Spandrew, cast your mind, cast your mind back to the distant past of your 2017 San Diego Comic-Con. I'm at my booth, standing there, right in front of Halsey, handing people books. Hey, man, oh my god, comic? You were right in front of Halsey? Did she buy a book? I hate you. Uh, handing there, Erica Badu did come to the table, and she actually knew who I was, which is weird. Um, uh, handing people books, talking, hey, scabba-da-bee, scabba-da-ba, she actually She actually knew you from Deep Cuts, though. Yeah, yeah, she did. She was like, uh, this is a forced social interaction. <laughs> and I was like, it ain't for me, baby girl. What's up? <laughs> and she was like, nah, nah, I'm good. And I was like, okay, cool. I like your music. Um, so we're, you know, doing our thing, slinging books as, as you do at a comic book convention. And the person who's always tabling across from me at that show is this guy, Stefan, who uh, is a longtime animation director, knows everybody in the animation world. Uh, worked at Lucasfilm for a long time, worked at Disney, who was one of the supervising directors on Marvel's What If. He's been around forever. And I look up, and who's talking to him? Doug fucking Tenaple. Tenapes. The old Tenapes. So I'm like, oh, wow, that's Doug Tenaple. 
that's weird. Because uh, I know Stefan and he's very liberal, like very, he's a leftist. So I'm like, oh, wow, I can't believe they know each other. That's, that's interesting. So he's talking with him and he's wearing a hat. Doug Tenaple is wearing a hat. He's wearing a baseball hat. And I was like, no, I've never seen Doug Tenaple. He's a very tall man, first of all. Like yeah, six like, five, six like, six. Yes, like super. Like sh- if you see him, like in relation to other people, you're like, oh shit! Like he's not just tall; like he's like freakish. Yeah, he's very, very tall. So he's talking to Stefan, and uh, to make some sort of point, he takes off his hat and starts gesturing with his hat. He's like waving it around, and it took everything I could do not to cackle with laughter because Doug Tenaple had a buzz cut that he had bleached. And died into the shape of an American flag. Oh, I, I've seen that haircut. Like, not on him, but I've seen that haircut. It's, <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. And I mean that in, like, the worst way possible. Yeah, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't. No. It, it's, <laughs> it, it's not like a, a Dennis Rodman, oh, man, this guy's so funky, beats to his own drum. It's like, oh, this guy... Is this guy a school shooter? Like, what's going on here? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing with all, like, I think I think maybe this was discussed a little bit in the QAnon episodes. But the one thing about, like, the Proud Boys and all of these different, like, far-right groups is the color scheme of the American flag does not look good on in fashion. It's a bad look. It does not, it's, those colors do not go together well when they're put on a shirt or a hat or something like that. They, it just does not look good. You ain't wrong. And you know what? <laughs> they look even worse when they're dyed onto someone's head. Fucking ridiculous, man. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I can only imagine because I have I have seen that haircut in videos, probably probably during QAnon month. Needless to say, he didn't hang out and talk to either Stefan or me for that long. But it was it was quite the introduction to old dirty tenapes, as they say. So. Old Dirty Tenapes, uh, he's, um, he's what you would call, um, shitty. He, he constantly is kind of avowing these political viewpoints that are very difficult to reconcile as somebody who really loved Earthworm Jim, um, personally. You know, everybody's mileage is going to vary with that, but for me, uh, it's really hard to look at the fun, meta, weird, almost, you know, art house video game bullshit that is Earthworm Jim and reconcile that with the guy who's just like hating on gay people and shit. Like it's really, it's a, it's, it's what's a, what the fuck is her name? Uh, transphobe idiot who created Harry Potter. JK Rowling. Yeah. It's a real JK Rowling situation, except it's even weirder because I feel like JK Rowling just is like dumb and shitty about like that topic where Tenaple loves to debate people. And he loves to go on these shows and just like say stupid shit constantly. So it makes re- it makes it really hard to like, oh, well, I disagree with him on one point. It, he's just constantly just like fucking being an asshole about all this shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was like, I'm not the biggest, but I was a, I was a fan of Doug Tenaple for for a while. Like I said, I liked I liked a, a bunch of his sort of self-published books. And I was obviously a huge fan of Earthworm Jim. And, uh, you know, before I kind of even knew that he made comics, I was a huge fan of the stuff he did at Channel 101. Um, He 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 made a a web series called Sock Baby, which I 
loved. Um, and basically, Sock Baby is like a is like a not a parody, but it's it's like a weird sci fi seventies kung fu film mashup. Um, and it's about this world where uh, there's this guy named Ronnie Cordova who's like this kung fu guy. He's like a Chuck Norris type guy. Um, and he has a friend who is a android and they're taking care of this little alien baby named Sock Baby, who's a literal just sock puppet. And they're protecting him from this race of like weird monster guys that are trying to capture Sock Baby. And the monster guys are like these dudes that wear like black, like mafia suits. And then they have like white face paint and they have like these kung fu fights that are like really well choreographed and shot like in the middle of like a suburban cul-de-sac in like a neighborhood. Um, and uh, he he created it. He wrote it. Um, and uh, there's like animation in it that he did. Um, and I, I, I loved that. And like the I think episode four of Sock Baby, it has uh, John Heater and uh, Doug Jones in it. Um, Dougie so Jones. Gotta love it. It started out as a small little web series, and then eventually they got like some legit like people to to play weird characters in it, um, like John John Heater because John Heater has a twin. Um, he he's a twin, uh, which not a lot of people know. And there's in the last episode, uh, the Ronnie Cordova fights uh John Heater and his twin brother, who are like they they come out of a pool and they're both in scuba gear. And they're like conjoined twins, and he fights these two twins at the same time. Um, I was a huge fan of that, um, and and I was aware of, like I said, I was aware of the fa- uh, the fact that he had these conservative views that I don't personally agree with, and I was also aware of like the really heavy handed religious stuff that he put into a lot of his work. Which you know, that's not even separating the art from the artist. That's just like it's in the text of the of the work. Um, and I didn't really. I looked past all of that stuff like that. I, I didn't care. Like, that's not a big deal to me. If 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 the if the if the if the comics got to a point where it was just like so in, like obnoxious that I just couldn't enjoy it anymore, then like that would be one thing. But like I was fine with it. Um, uh, but the 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 the, the place where I kind of draw the line on anything like I, I you know, if you just have like views that I just don't agree with or whatever like I don't care like I'm not gonna be your friend maybe but like I don't give a shit but like the place where I draw the line and where I ended up drawing the line right around the time that those Earthworm Jim books he was he was kickstarting came out was like when your views are like that people are certain types of people are just fundamentally not valid like that's like that's not that's not just a difference of opinion to be like these types of people aren't real or like don't deserve rights. Like that's that's just that's not an opinion. That's not an agree to disagree thing. That's just like your your belief is that these per- people that are perfectly normal and just like anybody else just like aren't real people. That like I, that's not something I I, just- I agree. I I think let's 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 listen to a couple of these uh these little videos and see see how things go. Um, I don't remember what the first one is, but the other ones are starting broken here. out. Yeah, starting there. Yeah, I think we'll see. I don't remember what this one is. Oh yeah, this is him basically taking the comics gate pledge. Yeah. Oh wait, did you have a time stamp? Uh, I don't. I think it's just like it's like an interview where like they're talking to him and he basically like says like I love comics, great. 
Uh, Penny Wisdom 1983, $10, says, if Doug is back to read this, Earthworm Jim was a huge part of my childhood, and I'm proud to support Bigfoot Bill today. Hmm. We passed 180000 Congrats. Much love for Comicsgate. Thanks, Ethan. Doug, I just want to point out that um, Penny Wisdom 1983 said, we passed 19, uh, yeah. 180K. It's a we. This is everyone's accomplishment. Like, you know, when, <laughs> look at, when it, a, look at a, Doug Table's hair. Succeeds on this level. Uh, comic skaters themselves can take pride in this and feel proud because they're able to say, yeah, well, Bigfoot Bill passed $183,000. And that's why, uh, you know, this community is big. That's why we're growing. That's why we're important. And we need to be respected. That's right. Um, so it's a, I, it's I, I, I would treat every backer the way I treat everyone in this room with the exact same respect. It's Unless a, they're uh, gay. I dig you guys. I do not agree with everyone, obviously, and everyone doesn't agree with me. Yeah. But I will go to the end with you guys. You guys, before you saw the book, you put your money in and you and you you put the first vote in. And that demands my loyalty. It demands my respect. In, in a way that for any of you who know what my philosophy on art is, I just to me, art is life and death. I was explaining to my kid today why I do pink hair is I'm, uh, to me, there's not a difference between real life and art. It's like art is part of my real life and performance art sometimes ends up on top of your head. It's like, it's no, that's how I, I, I see it. So I don't see Thanks, Doug. this, uh, I'm a, I'm a performer and I'm up on stage and my audience is very distant and very far away and small people. That's a terrible way to think of people. Instead, my backers are, um, partners i'm going to put on a show for you as hard as i possibly can with this book that's what all these comic skate guys are doing in eyes we're putting on a show because we're no, we natural entertainers and we do that every night together we're doing it now yeah. and i mean that's that's the thing people do tune in to so us cringy people, uh people enjoy it when you're here so i want you to remember that as you do this other project that's not comic skate related I want you to remember that. Remember where your home is. Where Wait, what other project's not comics get related? You just said that you're doing another project right after this before you do Bigfoot Build 2 that is not comics get related. That is no, no, no. It is com it's all comics gate. I'm just saying it's not Bigfoot Bill. No, I'll always be comics. Are you gate. here? Are you crowdfunding it? Or what do you what do you mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is that uh -huh. yours or the one with Elliot? Oh, we gotta talk about this. Both. Both. Yeah, Ethan, I gotta talk to you offline about it, but you can't right. go blabbing this crap to everybody, okay? You gotta, <laughs> I'm just saying that's good we, that's, that's if good I enough. say something in private. So basically, you know, this is kind of I sometimes how these things work. I sometimes see I know I know that this podcast is different than these like dudes talking podcasts, but I sometimes see podcasts like listen to or I, I listen to podcasts or see a clip of something. And I really am just like, I hope that this is not how we sound. Like, <laughs> it is. Like, <laughs> it is. It totally is. I mean, we're we're not being hateful bigots, but <laughs> it is. We're we're. I'm sure there's somebody that rolls their eyes at one of our dumb bits. Oh, I mean, we know that from the from the reviews. Yeah, that's true. So basically, if you're if you're not in the world of comics, the way this works or what this means when he says I'm comics gate is there was a. Uh, there was a video game blogger and journalist maybe about eight years ago named Anita Sarkeesian who wrote and produced a video series um, all about kind of looking at video game tropes through a feminist lens and analyzing inherent misogynistic and sexist uh, structures in the video game world. And it lit a very specific person's opinions on fire. They were, they were just... Uh, 
they, Bro, there was a, there was a very specific douche that really hated her and hated this person. Your go, your go, your scope is going too wide. You're going. No, you you're start. Going, you start. You're going back needed, to Gamergate. Needed, yes. Yes. Ga- so you start. Gamergate with, so, literally started every aspect of what our world is now. It's true, but it's just let me finish. Let me finish. So Anita Sarkeesian makes these videos called Feminist Frequency, I believe, about analyzing sexism in video games. Those Gamergate, it spawns these group of dudes who start referring to themselves as Gamergate because it basically is like a, there's like a kerfluffle. People are talking about how it's this controversy and because we have no rhyme or reason to reality anymore, every controversy gets branded with the gate uh, suffix or whatever. Um and out of that Gamergate movement, which which, by the way, I think I might have said this before, but I fucking hate there's there's a particular thing about me, which I don't know if this is what this quirk is, if it's just a part of my personality or if it's just a very common thing. But I really hate it when people use like mimetic terminology for things like the fact that every time anything happens, it gets called something gate just really annoys me like. Come up with a unique term. Like the fact that you're just like, it's this gate is so stupid. Like, like Elon Musk recently, like when he got accused of sexual harassment, he was like, just call it Elon gate or Musk gate or whatever. It's like, shut the fuck up. That's not funny. That's not funny. So basically these, this controversy, which gets called Gamergate, that title becomes adopted. I'm sorry. uh, It's the internet equivalent of that thing that happens when you work at a store where you s- try to scan something and it doesn't work. And then the person goes, must be free. And then like every person says that exact thing and every single person thinks it's funny and they have no idea that 20 people already said it. That is, that like blank gate is the equivalent of that. You're not wrong. Uh, So that scandal, Gamergate, ends up becoming the the name or the standard bearer that all these horrible sexist video game nerds pick up they start recalling themselves gamergate some stuff happens in the comic book world a few years later and there are certain groups of people that are accused of being like gamergate they then adopt the term comics gate as an outgrowth of that and now comics gate has evolved to the point where there are like i said five or six 20 50 older conservative creators who make comics specifically to satisfy that niche and those fans are horrible and bullshit and they constantly harass me and my friends although less me but a lot of my friends online i'm not big enough to for anybody to give a shit about um but they're terrible fuck gamergate fuck comics gate fuck all of that yeah i mean and it also bear it just also bears mentioning that the Frederick Brennan created 8chan because Gamergate was eventually banned from 4chan. So he created 8chan specifically so that people in the Gamergate community could have a place to talk about things. 8chan directly led to the creation of QAnon, which directly led to January 6th, all this shit. Like, it it cannot be understated that Gamergate, like, created the world that we live in right now. Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. Um... So let's 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 look at some of these clips of uh, our our uh, our our old dirty tenapes talking about some political stuff. I'll mute that from now on. Sorry, Stephen Hawking. <laughs> well, that's not even fair to have that button. Did um, you mute Doug and not? Yeah, that? yeah, I got it. I got it. <clears throat> Sorry. Go ahead. 
So, so yeah. yeah, overall, I think it's, and I've looked at all, I'm looking at the science, I'm looking at the data of what is COVID, what are the rates, what's actually happening. It doesn't look like any science that I've ever seen before. So I just assume all of the data is probably either polluted or politicized. And I, I don't know what to think about it. You know, I, my parents uh, currently have COVID. My brother just came, overcame COVID. But um, I, I don't know of anyone around me who's died of it. And, and I know that there's lots of people who do die of it. But I just don't see the hysteria at all or the justification for the shutdowns. I know that there's a body count on that, too. So in general, I'm against it. I think if you, if you feel like you need to wear a mask or a hijab, then get in there. But I'm not wearing one. Well, there's been no there's been no proof at all that masks work at all. And they've done studies on that that I just think people don't understand the way a virus works. I mean, when a virus gets out into a public, it does its damage. It has its curve. And the curve remains the exact same shape from country to country. It might be a little I'm sorry, it might be a little bit bigger in some countries, a little bit lower in certain other countries, but sooner or later, everybody gets the curve because that's the shape of the communicability of the virus. It's, it, I can't even, I can't even, this is just making me irate. Let's just go to the next one. Just a nineties video game designer talking out of his ass with his full voice. Yep. Everybody gets to be made by two other people. So they're already responsible when it is formed. So the, the fetus becomes the victim. In fact, what happens is the fetus is the only victim. Can we get the fetus on the stand <laughs> to defend itself? I mean, well, at, when at, you, well get, you, all of us were once fetuses. So we all went through that process. All of us did. There's not a single human being at, that we, that we know of that was not once a fetus. So all, all you're looking at is just a, a basic understanding of, Believing in a trajectory and knowing where this thing is going to go. Yeah, just we, if, if fetuses don't have bodily autonomy, as you've conceded, then this is essentially a null argument. The, the, the state just can't involve itself in this. You're begging the question. Because it's not the, what question begging the question is, is. I'm autonomous too. You're autonomous. You think you're a rabbit and I'm autonomous and I think you're a human male. Okay, gotcha. You, you, there, by saying, the way, you are legally freedom. obligated to call um, rabbit people bunny boys. That is something that you actually have to do. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's unpack yeah. this. So that was the attack helicopter joke. So do you recognize that there was a difference between gender and species, that these are different things? You mean gender and sex? No, gender and species. A species is a very specific um, biological delineation, which you can empirically defer to with regards to genomes and hereditary behaviors and a bunch of other really complicated stuff that's beyond me. That's not my major. Whereas gender is a series of social norms and collected sort of responsibilities and expectations which are associated with sex. Yeah. Yeah. So if a person said, I'm a bunny rabbit, that is a factually incorrect statement unless they're a bunny rabbit and, and they can talk. Whereas if a person said, I'm a woman, as long as that was a thing they believed to be true, that could, that's a, yeah, a true statement. Yeah. My problem is using the word gender. Gender, it, it had one meaning, which is what I believe it as, the classic meaning. And then they invented a new word called gender, where they said that it meant whatever you want to feel about sexuality, you can identify yourself as. So back when I was, I was raised on a farm, you know, in Turlock in fourth grade and they would, uh, 
you know, you'd have to, you'd have to gender chickens to find out, you know, if you got to put the rooster with the hen, you'd, you'd gender them. Um, and you would, uh, check their <laughs> this is amazing. Go, oh, this is, a, this is a male. And this I, one's, a I've female. always heard it as you sex them. Like I sex, you my, sex my them lizards. also. Yeah. You sex them. That's another word for it because the words used to be interchangeable. And now gender means, you know, you can. Do you, you think you it's might. wrong that the words definitions have colloquially expanded? Yeah, I, I wish they used a different word. They should just call it. They should just call it. This is how I, you know, I, I think call, saying I identify as is more accurate because you're saying regardless of my biology, I project my own personal expression into this is that I can say I'm a rabbit or I'm a woman or I'm a, they, oh, they God. All right. We get the point. We <laughs> get what we get, what we, we understand. We all understand. There's so much to unpack there. I don't even want to go through the individual political claims that he's making because I'm more interested in us talking about kind of like ideas around the separation of the art and the artist ideas of, um, an artist's role in society, uh, ideas around like, you know, he talks a lot about performance art and kind of, uh, this idea that performing and living in a, in a, in a way that is a reflection of this bigger idea is something that's really important to him and fuels him as a person and an artist. Um, and that flies in direct contradiction and, and contrasting. Yeah. That was, that was the exact same thing I was going to say. Like, that what he was just saying directly contradicts that other thing he was saying like oh i have pink hair because art and and like you know you it just winds up on your head but like this doesn't apply if it doesn't meet my definition of what is okay to do it's almost like he he's like such a normie weirdo where he's like pink hair isn't that fucking strange but then like when real sort of like transhumanist ideas are presented to him, he's like, well, back in my day, we used to gender chickens. It's like, who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck about gendering chickens, bro? That was the weakest. I, I know you don't want to talk about the, the claims, but that was the weakest anti-trans argument I've ever heard. Because the definition of a word was once slightly different whenever you were a kid. Who yeah. cares? Who cares? Who fucking cares? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's interesting that he... There's a term in, in certain circles called the Claremont window, which is like a jokingly colloquial term that's about when a male writer's sexual proclivities or fetishes line up with that wave of feminism's ideas. And it's named after Chris Claremont, obviously because he loved Storm... Aurora Monroe, Rogue, and Kitty Pride Shadowcat so much and placed so much narrative primacy on them in the X-Men comics that they have become beloved and literal global pop culture figures because of it. It's interesting to me, I feel like there's like a Tenaple window too of like when your idiosyncratic worldview syncs up with what society, what like the furthest edge of society will tolerate as like a weird thing a worm in a suit that's crazy you just never evolve past that idea of what interesting art could be so you're like trapped in 1989 just like 
What's happening? What's going on? Bathrooms. We've got to protect the bathrooms. (laughs) Yeah. And also like addicted to that idea of being like the weird outcast that people are like, you know, sort of being being like anti-establishment and counterculture to the point where like once the establishment has like moved past the limits of your of your uh uh sensibilities like no nobody in this day and age would give a three shits about earthworm jim as some controversial thing or think it was weird like it's it's every like our culture has become about like fucking postmodern weird shit now so yeah so in the vacuum of being in that counterculture you have to like push yourself further it's like i only believe these things because the mainstream thinks that they're bad which is like which is like a, which is a, which is a bad like guiding light for your own personal worldview yeah it's interesting though because like he is a person is you know he was raised on this farm he's from i think he's from michigan uh he moves out to la gets into art and normally you would think like an artistic person surrounded by artistic people in a creative industry their worldview expands they learn things even if they still have certain opinions they see the other person's point of view more right like you don't see many hot take crazy uh crazy oh man we gotta burn it all down type takes from people that are professionally creative right um it it expands your worldview it it your job as a creative person especially as a writer is to see the world through other people's eyes and to think about other people's positions and point of view and to do so with a best case scenario with a with a good faith argument right like you don't you don't go into these situations trying to construct people whose worldviews don't make sense even the villain in a story thinks they're the hero of their their own narrative and they they need to be fleshed out as a real thinking breathing person if it's going to be compelling which is interesting when you look at Tenaple's work because i feel like jim is a character princess what's her name queen slug for a butt professor what's his name or Professor uh, Monkey for a Head, they're placeholder names. And I think that that in the 90s was avant-garde and interesting and weird and left of center. And their characteristics are kind of the same. Everything is like an archetype. Everything is just kind of there, you know? Um, They're very kind of illustrator with comics or illustrator narratives. They're not writer narratives. Um, And I like stuff that could, that's illustrator driven sometimes. But it's interesting looking at them at that point in time and drawing a straight line to now where it's kind of how how are you this closed off? Like, I think you can think something is dumb or weird or, you know, freaked out by something. But to to be so especially about other people, like, I don't know, it's really it's really irksome and sad to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. And the thing I always think, and it's funny because, you know, every every time, every time like a like some kind of trans issue sort of bubbles up in the in the zeitgeist, um, there's some kind of national discussion about something related to to trans people or trans rights or, you know, trans women in sports and, and all these things. Every time one of those things pops up in the last several years since it's really gotten, you know, firmly in the Overton window, um, the the. It, I, it strikes me as kind of funny because in reaction to these like bigoted views and people, you know, disingenuously misusing data or sometimes just making up data to pretend like they're coming at it from a scientific perspective of how, you know, 
women are biologically women or men are biologically men or whatever it is and how it's unfair for trans women to play in women's sports and all these things. I always see, you know, you see it on on TikTok and you see it on all these social platforms where you'll have like you'll have uh you know either either trans influencers or like scientists or doctors or whatever well they'll, they'll make their their little video where they're like actually you know sex and gender are different things and blah 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 blah, blah. And they'll explain all these scientific reasons why about why that's not true why why it's not scientifically accurate that you are the biological you know uh your gender is your your gender is what biological sex you you are assigned and all these things like that and I always see those things and obviously it's like well-intentioned and it's coming from a place of like defense or trying to help. But I always think like, who cares? You don't need to explain to these people the scientific reasons for why. Who gives a shit? You don't like you don't need to explain to anybody anything. We can do whatever we want. And whatever your opinion is on trans people, who cares? It's not about you. Like. We can do whatever we want. And so this idea of being obsessed with this thing, like, I don't believe in these views at all. But if you did believe in these views, also, who gives a shit? Mind your own business and live your life. You don't need somebody to prove to you scientifically that trans women are women. It literally doesn't matter to you at all. If you don't believe that, who cares? It literally doesn't affect you in any way. So. That and I know that's not anything that people haven't thought about. That's not like a revolutionary idea. But the thing that strikes me about it is like how obsessed and like consumed with this people get. It's bizarre to me. It's they've gone so far down this rabbit hole of it becoming an aspect of their personality that it they develop a unique obsession with it that is like abnormal. Like this is not a normal way that people get up. Uh, uh, this is not a normal way that people allow like political things to affect their lives. And it, it's just it's just very bizarre to me. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm less interested in going down the list of his bizarro anti-COVID, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, anti-trans, anti- just like respecting people's pronouns. Like who gives a shit? I don't care. Who yeah, the fuck and that, cares? Yeah, then that, that, that's the bizarre thing to me because it, it feels it feels bipartisan like it, it it feels like something that shouldn't be an issue uh whatever your specific beliefs are about the legitimacy of trans people or whatever that your day-to-day life is not affected by it in any significant way for you to care about it yeah and and the and the and the fact that people are so obsessed with it is very bizarre to me it's like what what is going on in your life where this has taken up so much of your day i mean with Tenaples specifically though i feel like it's this weird thing of like you know there's this urban legend that when jack kirby would work on comics he would sit in his basement and listen to conservative talk radio and draw because the conservative talk radio would like rile him up and he'd be like energized and it would keep him in the chair for hours and hours and hours just being like puffing away on a pipe and you know mumbling to himself about how stupid these idiots were while drawing dark side or whatever and i love that image but i feel like at a certain point in time, Doug Tenaple heard that story, started listening to conservative talk radio, and then just developed a man crush on Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> you know, like he didn't he didn't have the strength to fight the oncoming horde that Kirby did. So he's he's just not he's not as much of a man as Kirby. So he like became brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel like that, and it's funny because that literally does happen. Like that's how 
that's how people get radicalized on the internet. They 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 might be like apolitical, or, but all these kids on the internet they started like saying these extreme things as like a joke, and then they like accidentally radicalize themselves into really believing it. Yeah, because your identity gets tied up in it. Yeah, I, I, it's it's very weird and sad and dark. And uh, I think my closing thought is um, spoiler alert: all of this shit has ruined fucking Earthworm Jim for me. I, I don't know if you can still play the games or interact with it in a meaningful way, but I I can't. I it just it just tanked it for me. Yeah, I mean, Earthworm Jim, the game, I mean, I haven't played Earthworm Jim, so I don't even, I, I'm sort of speaking hypothetically here, but Earthworm Jim is the one thing, the game of it, because I feel like with Earthworm Jim, it's like, it was it was created by a team of people, and he was like an aspect of it. So it's, you know, it's, it's like I said, I haven't even played it, so I'm not even saying like, yeah, I fucking played Earthworm Jim before we started recording. Um, but it, it that one specifically feels less like I have an aversion to it. Uh, the game, the the game. Um, but like I said before, I I really wanted to get those Earthworm Jim books. Uh, but I was finding out stuff about Doug Tenaple around the time that he was doing those Kickstarters, those early ones, the 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 first Earthworm Jim book, and you know the Earthworm Jim comics, any of other of Doug Tenaple's other comics, stuff that he's like the sole creator of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I didn't care about any of his like political views before but uh, i sort of draw the line at you know that hateful beliefs about like human beings not being like valid or real or like advocating for taking people's rights away like not letting people get married because of some bullshit arbitrary reason um that's like sort of where i draw the line because that's not an opinion to me that's just like that you're just saying like you're just like wanting to openly oppress people um so yeah yeah i i i wouldn't read any more Doug Tenable books or or um anything like that for sure um yeah it definitely 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 colors it in a way that makes where I can't enjoy it it's a bummer it's a real bummer um yeah I wish I had a I wish I had a (laughs) slightly more uplifting note to end this on but yeah it's a it's a real bummer that uh the games kind of they got screwed over prior to him having not prior, he still had them, but you know what I mean? Like, they, that third game was so bad. Um, and it's kind of a bummer that they couldn't make the character exceed past him. I think that's the thing that, for me, is, like, the reason why I kind of can't enjoy those first two games anymore is because looking at the third game where he wasn't involved, like, it's it sucks. And so he is the good thing about the first two games. In my head, like, emotionally, right? Like, I'm not saying he is the only thing that was good, but just like thinking about it, like just trying to parse out my feelings emotionally. He is, he still feels as though he's the center of that universe. So it's hard to put that aside and interact with it in a meaningful way. Yeah. I think, I think that like, I'm, I'm sure there's non-creative people that feel this way, but I feel like one of the big distinctions between somebody who's like really invested in these things um, and people who just sort of like enjoy them casually is, you know, because you talk about people, you know, separating the art from the artist and a lot of people who are just like, yeah, I don't I don't care about that. Like, I just like this thing. And it doesn't like who who cares, like if the person who made it is like a shitty person or whatever. Um, and I think that I think a lot of them can think that people who can't separate the art from the artist are being melodramatic and just taking this arbitrary political stance and being ridiculous. Um, and I think that 
I mean, I mean, maybe to a certain degree, there are people who sort of do, do it performatively. I don't, I mean, I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I, I'm sure that there are people, I think there are people who like exaggerate things in all aspects of life. But I think that the reason why a lot of people feel that way is because like when, when you, when you are a creative person or you're just very invested personally in something, you, you, you think of it like a friend or like an extension of yourself. And so the idea that this thing was created or or came from somebody who just has these horrible beliefs that are uh, dehumanizing and hateful and, you know, advocating for taking people's rights away and invalidating people's existences and humanity, um, it it's hard to describe, but it just kind of makes you feel sick. It just like it's like it almost makes it feel like you are engaging in that. And I think that's a lot. That's the reason why people kind of sometimes can't do it. Um, and I think that that's that's the thing that like the, the average person might not understand because they don't feel things that thoroughly. What- yeah, I think there's also a component of it because a there's a comics component to this, and and because I come at things from a comics background is like I typically am interested in people or creators or artistic projects in order to learn about the person, you know, as opposed to like. I go to a movie to see the artifice of Michael Keaton or whatever. It's more like I'm more interested in learning about Michael Keaton, the person behind the role. You know, I, I guess I've misphrased that. Like I go, I don't go to a movie to see James Bond. You know, I go to a movie to think about like why Terrence Young put the camera where he put it in, you know, uh, uh, you only live twice or whatever. And so it's really hard for me personally to detach an art, object from the creator because typically i'm going to experience the art object narrative whatever it is in order to learn about the person and figure out why they made the thing the way they made it in order to incorporate that into my own artistic practice to increase my own level of skill as an artist and i don't think many people experience things that way um and you probably shouldn't it's Fine, you're, you're 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 the way you watch movies is probably way better than it's it's miserable to watch a movie with me because I'm constantly like why the fuck are they doing a wide shot here? This is so bullshit. Like you know, I'm 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 ter- it's terrible to watch a movie with me. Um, but yeah, you just that, you just you just turn into George Burns every time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but 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 stuff like this, I think, is a perfect example of like, or or it's the the the, the case that is communicable to people outside of that world maybe a little bit where it's kind of like i go to play earthworm gym or watch the show earthworm gym or collect the toy of earthworm gym in order to kind of deconstruct it in my head and think about or enjoy or process why the person who made that thing made it the way they did and that immediately jumps to this person also thinks that like gay people shouldn't be married so like that their their brain just immediately just isn't as interesting to me to deconstruct because I'm just like, ugh, that's gross. All right, let's not do this. You know what I mean? Well, on that note, I'm Dave Baker. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or you can find my Eisner Award nominated book, Everyone's Tulip, Night Hunters, Star Trek, a bunch of other comics. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me launching a cow into space that will land on top of Dave at the end of this episode crush him and uh, you can't find me on social media because i don't use social media but you can find 
your your dear beloved Papa Pricey's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, on his website, dapricerights.com. You can follow us on social media. Go to Facebook, search Deep Cuts Podcast. Join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can also join our Discord, bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord, where we make memes, talk about the show, and talk about other things. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our website and click on the shop and you can buy t-shirts and other items with Deep Cuts graphics on them. You can also buy the Junior Sleuth uh, patch at our website. Um, and uh, we still have still have like eight copies of the of the uh, Napster musical uh, tape comic thing that I talk about a lot. Um, if you go to deepcutspod.com and click on the shop. Uh, we have about we have about eight of them left. Twelve ninety nine flat. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.